Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather under a blue, somewhat cloudy sky, perfect temperature. Um, Lord, beautiful day, and open your word together. Lord, uh, we know that you want to speak to us, Lord. It's been, uh, Revelation has been a crazy book, and it comes with a blessing, a blessing to read, to do, and to keep the words of the prophecy, or the words of this book. And, and Lord, help us, help us to do that. Lord, some of this stuff, I mean, today is an example of stuff that we kind of find hard to read. A judgment at the end of time where people we love and we know will receive the reward for their works, Lord, and reward in a negative sense, Lord. They'll be judged. And as much as we maybe don't love reading that and thinking about it, Lord, it's here before us today. And may we see your grace, your mercy, and your love in the midst of judgment that you want every single person in this world to avoid. Father, we, we pray that you'd open up your word to us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 is how far we've come. And just for the sake of time, we can... We're just going to kind of jump right in. You know, of course, we've read of the thousand years that Satan has been bound, uh, restricted um, to the pit, and the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ physically, bodily reigning on earth with every believer from every age present through that time. And then we read that Satan must be released. He, he comes out and he proves that mankind is desperately wicked, desperately incurably sick, the prophet Isaiah says, and Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17. You know, we're so sick, we're so, we're so twisted that even in a perfect environment, even with Jesus Christ reigning physically as king over the earth, Satan comes back, deceives a great multitude that does battle against him. And is that last insurrection, rebellion, is put down. That's kind of how far we've come. Satan, of course, the devil, verse 10, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They'd been placed there before at the end of the seven years. The be uh, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And like I said, as I was praying, it's, this is not... I don't know. I sometimes wonder what people think of me in the sense of like when we've got to teach about the great white throne judgment. What do you, what do you think goes on in the heart? I, I, I just throwing this out. What do you think goes on in my heart all week? You know, like I'm looking forward to telling people that if you don't repent and turn to the free gift of grace that Jesus offers you, you're going to spend eternity in torment in a place that the Bible speaks so, you know, terribly about? You think that's like, I'm like looking forward to it with great joy? You know, I want you to understand something about the Lord, right? When we read that there is great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner, one man that is that needs to be reconciled with God, brought back, brought into the family, when one man comes back to the Lord, one lost son or lost daughter, there is great rejoicing in heaven. So I believe, personally, though it's not explicitly stated, that the opposite or the inverse is true. When one wicked man perishes, I think it breaks God's heart. I think there's sorrow over that. 
there's not sorrow in like, oh, that was wrong that God judged that man. But there is sorrow because there was an incredible opportunity. A way was made, paid for by another man's life for that man to walk free or that woman to walk free. And they rejected it all of their life until their death. So just understand there's no glee on my part to teach about the great white throne judgment. This is not like, hey, I'm, I'm waiting all week because I know some of you guys are sinners and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, teach the great white throne judgment and you're going to be so afraid that you're going to get saved all over again. Look, if you don't know the Lord, understand this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Without an understanding of our own sin, we don't need a Savior ever. And we'll be like the rest of a do-gooding world, right, that thinks they're great, looks down at other people, prays like the Pharisee and Luke 18. We're going to talk some about him. They pray with themselves, you know. We're going to be like that, thinking we're awesome, thinking everybody else is terrible because we're pretty good, aren't we? You know, a rich young ruler came to Jesus one time. And he said, hey, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at this young, rich, moral, you know, uh, responsible man and said, you just called me good. There's nobody that's good except God. Do we all recognize that? Do we all recognize that? I hope by the end of this morning, we'll, we'll see it again. It'll be brought back before our eyes. You know, this is stuff the Lord wants us to be in. And not that I hate to read it. We have to read it. We have to know it. We have to acknowledge that this is real. This is coming just as much as we want heaven, just as much as we want a thousand years with Christ reigning. This is a reality that we will see, we will face. And let's read it that way. You know, at the end of, at the end of Revelation, there's a warning given where John says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of, book, of this book, if anyone adds to these things... God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That sounds terrible because we've read through Revelation and none of the stuff that came upon an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world sounded all that great, did it? But then he says this, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. We're going to read about the book of life today, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And we wonder sometimes, what does it mean to take away from the words of this prophecy? Like we're going to get out our, you know, our pen knife or our, our scissors and like cut out the parts that we don't like. Well, I don't, I don't think the church so much does that today. We trivialize God's word. We minimize it and act like it's not really going to happen the way it says, or we allegorize it and make it like, you know, this is literally coming. There is literally a day where every single being, every single person with a soul will stand before God. And there's only two kinds of judgment. There's a judgment of reward at the Bema seat of Christ, or there's the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment of really of condemnation, of guilt, where the record of each man's life is brought before them and they have to face the reality that they are not good. So let's let's go forward with that understood. Verse 11. And let's read the whole section until chapter 21. Hope you have your Bible out and are reading along with me. Then I saw, John says, a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books, plural, were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In verse 11, John describes a great white throne. I want you to understand something. You know, the rulers of this age, uh, you know, not, not so much Satan or you know, the, that angelic realm or fallen angels, but how, how do you acquire power most of the time in this world? Through murder, manipulation, through illicit motives. I mean, it's just, how do people rise to power in this world? Well kill all your adversaries. Man, that's not a white throne that anybody in this world is sitting on. But his throne is one that he achieved or earned in purity. And what do I mean he earned? Well, he, he has right to it because he's our creator. He has a divine right to do whatever he wants because he made us in this universe. But beyond that, you know, we read in Philippians that Jesus is exalted because he stooped low to come down here and save us and by in that humility in that in that service right Jesus was the guy that showed up and washed his disciples feet the night before he went to the cross for them as if the cross wasn't enough he washed their feet he took care of their needs right he provided an example for us right he is a servant at heart right and that is why he's exalted you know his throne is a pure throne. It's a white throne. And him who sat on it. John sees this great white throne. And um, him who sat on it. Listen to this detail. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. Well, what are the earth and the heaven? And what what is everything trying to do at that point? You know, after... A thousand years where all believers from every age have lived and reigned with Christ and after Satan has been put away forever. You know, who who is here before this great white throne and why are they trying to get away from it? Any of you guys... I wish I could stop that, but I can't. Any of you guys have uh, little toddlers that, that hid when they, you know, they're like potty training, right? And uh, you're trying to get them out of diapers, right? And uh, they're trying to stay in diapers. So you're doing, you're doing alternative. You're doing pull-ups. You're doing, you know, I mean, whatever. And you see your little, you little. I watched this just the other day. I'm not going to say whose kid it was. Uh, it wasn't mine. <laughs> but I watched a kid do this the other day. They went. They were over to our house. And they went behind this recliner in my uh, living room. And I kind of looked over there, and they're, they're leaning down, right? What were they doing over there? They were pooping over there. <laughs> like it was wrong. <laughs> um, 
you know, and then we have these little examples, like little kids, we think it's cute, but it's not so cute when our kids grow up and they do something wrong and they're too afraid to come to the person that loves them the most to confess and, 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 and receive counsel and receive our love and to be healed and given instruction. You know, they get, our kids get older and they come and they hide. We see a great example. I, I shouldn't use the word great. It's not a great example. Adam and Eve in the garden walked with God every day. They walked with the voice of the Lord. They enjoyed him every day. And the whole thing with Adam and Eve and the serpent and the apple happened. And God, I love this detail. God still shows up in the garden. Who's pursuing who? Right at that point, Adam and Eve were not pursuing God. God came down to the garden like he always does and said, hey, where are you guys? And they said, we're hiding. They're hiding. We, we realize that we're naked. We messed up. We're hiding. Well, who told you you were naked? What happened? We see this example of God pursuing people that are hiding. Sin causes a break in fellowship with, not. Al actually mentioned this last week, not just with God, but with people around us. Nah, I'm all right. It's not that bad. Thanks, though. Um, if it gets bad, maybe we should. Hey, Andrew, let's try it. Let's try it. I can't hear it, so. <laughs> they can. They can. Thanks. Are you supervising? Well, I was just going to put it on, but you, you apparently got it. Okay. Lefty Lucy, ready, tidy? You know, there's still people today, and we see them all the time, and sometimes we're them that we hide from the Lord. Like, he wants to, he wants to just destroy us. You know, Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, said, Hey, I didn't come to condemn the world. Like, the world was already messed up. It was already broken. It was already sinful. Jesus didn't step into this world to, like, see how things were and, like, find the good people and be like, Oh, Steve, you're good enough. You know, come with me. Uh, Glenn didn't make it. Papa, yeah, you're in. You know, it's not, it's not like that. He came down here explicitly to save men's souls. That's what his name means. The Lord is salvation. That's what Jesus means. Joshua, the Lord is salvation. He came to save people from their sins. It wasn't news to God when Jesus came that the world was messed up. This was the plan from the very beginning because sin drives us away from God. And Paul wrote about this as in, in 2 Corinthians. He said, we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And some of us, we, we, we love that privilege of seeing someone restored or reconciled. Something's broken and a person is actually reconciled with the one that made them, loves them, and can secure their future forever. But here we see a great white throne and one that sits on and everybody's trying to get away. Everybody's trying to flee. Because all their lives they, they stiff-armed God and this ministry of reconciliation. What he wanted to do was heal them and they kept just pushing him away. And my son said the other day, he said, look, Dad. Well, don't look at it. But he said, I can block out the whole sun with just my hand. And I thought, man, what a great analogy of what people do with the Lord. And blocking the sun out with your hand doesn't, make the, doesn't mean the sun is small. doesn't mean the sun ain't hot. doesn't mean anything about the sun, right? It's just your action. You're obscuring something that is truly real, 
right? And acting like, oh, look how big I am, right? I'm not, I didn't, I didn't reprimand my son for saying this. I thought it was, I, I used to do the same thing with my thumb. Like if Josh was saying something I didn't want to want to hear, it just, like that, he's gone, right? But is he really gone? No, he's not gone. He's behind my thumb, right? That same reality is true here. Where man comes to the end and there's God. And he's on a white throne. It's not something he murdered and manipulated to get. It's his by divine right. And he sits on that throne having offered his own son up as a sacrifice for them to gain entrance to eternal life. And they said, no way. They said, you're small, we can't see you. We can just cover you up and live the way that we want. They love darkness. They didn't come to the light because there's exposure when we come to the light. You know, sometimes I don't want to come to church. You know why? Because I'll be exposed. Somebody will come and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, I can lie or I can really tell you, right? I know that the word of God is going to be taught. And that that, that brings things out of me that I wish weren't there. But you know why God does that? So that we could change and grow. It's the same, the same heart that we have, hopefully, as parents, right? That's his heart. He doesn't want to see something he created. Beloved, you know, children, right? Hiding from him when he's the one to fix us and heal us and forgive us and make things right. The whole, there was found no place... For them to hide. And I saw the dead. Who's going to be at the great white throne judgment? I find this to be an interesting thing to think about. The dead will be there. What's the dead? Well, they weren't alive during the thousand years. They were kept in death, held in Hades or held in hell, which is just a waiting place for the lake of fire. Understand that. They, were, they remain there waiting for their resurrection. But their resurrection is to what? Judgment and to death. The resurrection of a believer is to life eternal. The resurrection of the dead, of those that have rejected Jesus Christ, is unto death. Unto, and I say death, eternal death, does that mean like annihilation? Like they get thrown into the lake of fire and that's it? No, Satan, the false prophet, the beast are all tormented forever and ever. So I want you guys to think about this because I, I don't know that I've ever heard it said and I don't want you to take it uh, as absolute gospel truth, but I don't see it said in here that, you know, the dead will be standing to be judged before the great white throne. But I wonder, I guess I'll say it that way. It's not a strong s statement, as strong that way. I wonder if we will be there observing. If God is on the throne... And they are being judged. Do, do you think we'll be shielded from that? Like hiding, like, oh, it's not really happening. I think there's the possibility that we could be watching people that we knew be judged for rejecting Christ. See, something very interesting, and again, I don't want to take this too far, is that in chapter 21, we read that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. That comes after the great white throne judgment. Now, I don't think we're going to be like crying and sobbing the whole time through the thousand year kingdom. But it seems maybe possible to me that I might, as I am standing there in observation at the great white throne judgment, I'm watching people being judged that I neglected to say anything to. 
that I neglected to love, that I neglected to pursue. And this is not some big guilt trip other than to say, you know, Paul says that it does matter what we do here. There's a judgment of reward for the believer. And when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne, we'll be judged for the good that we've done or not done. And some people, all their works, because their motivations, the intents of their heart were garbage, will all of their works will be shown for what they are. But others, like 1 Corinthians 13, that have understood that the greatest gift God wants to give you is not tongues, it's not prophecy, it's not faith, it's not knowledge, it's love, demonstrated, just like it says, long-suffering, kind, you know, not keeping records, unconditional love, the same kind of love we've received from God, that there will be great reward there for that. So what am I trying to say? There's a lot about our future that I don't know. But I wonder if it's possible that a believer will be in observation at the great white throne and be filled with sorrow to the point of crying over what they didn't do in the here and now that they can no longer, they can no longer go back and change that. You see, our love, our lives, you know, I don't believe in a God that, well, God is sovereign. He knows everything. He knows, but I'm not like so limited by that, that I, like, oh, well, I don't have to do anything. God will, if God wants to save Mike or God wants to save this guy or God wants to save that guy, he'll take care of it. I don't got to do nothing because he's sovereign. He's totally powerful. Is that what we're called to? Not at all. What we do matters and what we don't do matters and we will be rewarded for such. Now, don't take that as gospel truth because it may play out differently. But I know in chapter 21, he wipes away real tears from my eyes. And I know that it is not wrong for me to, to, as I'm praying, you know, or as you pray for people that you love that are lost and are headed to destruction. They're headed to the great white throne and you spill real tears over them. That's not wrong. It's not like, oh, God, you can't do anything. You're crying for them because of the anguish in your soul. That's the way, man, that's how revival happens. I love this quote. You know, revival happens when our hearts are broken, when our knees are bent, and when we're praying. I messed up the quote. Dang it. Those things are true. And it, it, it just made me think. I've always heard, oh, we won't be at the white throne. What are we just, it's like, it's not... We're not going to know it's happening. And I don't know how that works with eternity and regret and all of those things. I think there's freedom from that there. We're not going to be in eternity, you know, in eternity thinking, you know, oh, I wish I could have, you know, all of that will be washed away. But who's crying and who gets their tears wiped away? You know, and why is that after? Just something to think about. I saw the dead, small and great. You know, sometimes we lose perspective of small and great. You know, a peasant, a rice farmer, a car mechanic. I'm saying like these things are small, but people really do think this, right? An architect, a statesman, a politician, uh, you know, a general, great men and small men. It, it, that, that doesn't mean anything before God. That doesn't mean anything before his greatness. We will stand and the world will stand, not believers, but the world will stand and give account for what they have done and what they have not done. And, and let's look at the details of that. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. We're not going to, we're not going to, they're not going to stand before their peers. 
It's not going to be comparative. I'm better than Dale or Dale's better than me. They're going to stand before God and his perfection, his purity, his sinlessness. And that's who they're going to be compared to. And, you know, it says books were opened. Uh, again, some of this is my conjecture, my opinion, but I believe that these books are a written record of the things that we do in this life. And for the unbeliever who comes before God, suddenly they're confronted by this great white throne. They can't get away from it. They have to face it. And they stand up. And, uh, you know, they're standing. They're brought into this courtroom. And all of their deeds, right, wrong, whatever, are brought out. There's a perfect record of their lives and what they've done. And some people are going to be like, oh, good, he's getting the record. He's going to see this is going to set him straight on just how good a person I really was. And the record is not going to show that. You know, we all, and I think some of us struggle with different, some of us struggle with the pride of thinking we are pretty good people. When we look around us in this world and craziness that's going on, and some of us struggle with, are we really forgiven? Could God forgive somebody like me? And people struggle with different things. And some of us flip-flop from one to the other, which is fun. I'm probably in that category. But books were open. Men came before God, unbelieving men, and they stood before Him, and books were open. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. The Bible says some very interesting things about the book of life. And again, I don't know exactly what to make of it, except that, you know, Moses had this exchange with God after the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, where he said, Lord, if you don't forgive them, blot me out of your book of life. Blot my name out. Blot it out. And we see the book of life come up many times. Here's my perspective, right? Does God want anyone to perish? No. I believe every person enters this world with their name in the book of life because that's what God wants for them. That's what He desires. He doesn't desire that any would perish. They would know Him. They would know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's not our Father's heart. And through stubbornness and persistence in that stubbornness, you, you, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Saying no to God for a lifetime and having God finally at the end of your life say, you've had it your way. You can have what you want. You do not want me. You don't have to have me. I think names are blotted out from the book of life. This is hard to prove and be dogmatic about, but I believe names are blotted out. Those that refuse to believe when someone dies. You know, for man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. That's my perspective. It could play out differently, but knowing God's heart, his character, and that he's, he's a loving father, you know, we look at the man on the cross next to Jesus, right? Right? Was that, was that man blotted out? All those murders, all that insurrection, all those evil things that he did? He went to paradise. There was still opportunity there. And look, I mean, Dad, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but there are certainly people that watched my life spiraling out of control a decade ago that said there's, there's no hope for someone like him. His fate is sealed. His, it's set. That's not true with the Lord. What's, you know, salvation, not possible for man, but very possible for the Lord.
Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So understand the scene. You have men standing before God, books. Uh, think of it this way. What's a bookkeeper do? There's an accounting being done here. There's a written record of, of debt, if you would. A record of debt that's brought against every person that tries to stand. You know, people say, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. You, they will not. They will not. They'll stand and they will cower before a great white throne, knowing that they refused the throne of grace, and so they've secured a throne of judgment. And they'll say, but, but I was better than... I was better than Gary, you know? I was better than... And they'll say, I'm not comparing you to Gary. I'm not comparing you to Al. I'm not comparing you to anybody else. I'm comparing you to my perfect standard. Let us, let's look at the record. Let's open the books. And so, you know, that is very meaningful to me because in Colossians chapter 2, don't turn there, just listen. I got saved reading this, I literally reading this verse. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now listen. Having wiped out, here's the phrase, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. God wiped out my, another way of putting that handwriting of the requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, is my certificate of debt. I owed something so large, so unpayable, I had rebelled against God. And there was no sacrifice. There was no, it's like David when he cried out to God after killing Uriah. There was no sacrifice in the law for a murderer. But he, called, he cried out to God and received forgiveness. In fact, he said, he used this word, blot out my transgressions. You know what that word blot in the Old Testament means? Obliterate them. Obliterate them. You know, our sins can only be obliterated because somebody paid for them. And Jesus Christ paid for our sins by being obliterated by God. He was a burnt offering offered on our behalf. He was our sinless substitute, something that none of us deserve to have offered in our place, but we can receive by faith, by trusting in that. You know, this certificate of debt is evidence to every man, woman, you know, every person that's ever lived, we cannot just earn or pay for our salvation, you know. And I love, I love what Paul goes on to say in Colossians about this, you know, this certificate of death, this writing of requirements that was against us. It says, and God took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You ever read that verse and you're like, man, I think that may be the only time or one of the few times in the Bible where Jesus Christ... The Son of God is called it, right? How disgraceful. Like, cursed is the man that dies on a tree. That's what Old Testament said prophetically of how Jesus would die, right? Jesus became an it. Like, he became your sin to put it away forever. See, God loves you that much that he would come after you to call you son and take care of it, which is his perfect son. Now, I love the gospel. I love the Bible can be kind of, can, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways you can, you can kind of take the whole Bible and make it into a phrase. But I love, uh, this one is meaningful to me. Not, not your son, not your best, not your payment, but mine. My son, my best laid down on your behalf. 
That's the God we serve, guys. That's the God we worship. That's the God we're grateful for. He has taken it out of the way, the, our certificate of debt, and he pinned it to a cross. And I remember, this is literally where I got saved. I asked this question. I said, who's it? Who is it? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. And if he would do that for me, then I want to give him my life. I want to serve him. I want to know that kind of love. I don't want to have that kind of love for other people. And it is the very centerpiece of our faith, his sacrifice, his payment. And it has been rejected by so many. You know, I, I mentioned Luke 18, guys. Would you turn there? Because it's good to see the words on the page um, and be here for just a second or for a couple minutes. But Luke 18, chapter 9, if you turn there. And we hit this on our midweek, and it was, it's in, in context, it's, it's one of the most incredible sections of Scripture. Um, but we're just going to focus on uh, verse 9 through 14. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And like I told those on Thursday night, righteous. They, were, they thought they were as they should be. They thought, well, if, you, if you're looking for a great human being, that's me. And invariably, because they thought that of themselves, they despised others. Because if we're really good, because we go to church and we don't cuss and we tithe and we wear nice clothes and we are kind and we don't divorce our wives and whatever else, right? If that makes us good, right, and we can feel real great about all of those things, what are we inevitably going to do to people that... Don't do those things. We're going to look down our noses at them. That's what we're going to do. And so Jesus says, hey, you don't trust in your own work. Don't trust in your own merit. Right? If you're that kind of guy, you're going to hate everybody around you because you're going to think, oh, why can't they just do what I... You ever had that thought to somebody that's uh, trapped in a drug addiction? Why don't they just stop using drugs? I mean, I, I don't struggle with drugs. So why should they? And all of a sudden, you're in a place where, am I saying that their drug addiction is not sinful? Oh, it is. And suddenly you're, you're a Pharisee looking down your nose at them thinking, well, I don't struggle with that. I, I would never go that low. I'd never steal from my mom. Right? But Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. You guys know what's coming, but um, something I learned, I'll, I'll, I'll share it in just a minute. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus said, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. He didn't pray to God. He prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he's exactly like other men. We're all made from the same stuff, aren't we? Aren't we? I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers are even like that guy. Even like that dirty old tax collector who steals from his people. He's betrayed his nation. Thank God I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. Ooh. <laughs> I give tithes of all that I possess. Can't you hear him? He's praying out loud. <laughs> of course, so people can hear him. 
And the tax collector, man, what a contrast. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what stood out to me as I read this. I had this explained to me. I never knew it. But when he says, be merciful to me, you know what he's really saying? Make propitiation for me. You're like, ah, what, what is propitiation? Like, okay, I kind of know. It's like one of them technical church words. I'm supposed to learn like, you know, in Sunday school, but it was really long and big and motorcycles all go by. All right. Propitiation. That sinner stood before God and said, I can't pay. I can't pay. Make payment for me. I cannot pay for my sins. You're going to have to do it. You know, the Pharisee stood up and said, I don't have to pay. I got deep pockets. I tithe, I fast, I do all these things right. Here, God, take a 20, take a 50, take a 100, you know, whatever. God said, you can't pay, you idiot. But the sinner, the tax collector said, there's no way I can pay. You're going to have to pay for me. Be merciful to me, God, because I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector went down to his house. He went home from church that day, or he went home from the temple with something tangible and real. Jesus said he was justified, just as if he had never sinned at all. It got paid. His sin was covered. You know, love covers a multitude of sin. That's from God to man first, right? His love wants to cover your multitude of sins and my multitude of sins and the debt we could never pay. And when we cry out, I'm poor, I'm impoverished. You know, just like Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those that can look up at God and say, I, got I can't pay. I cannot pay. I'm going to need you to pay. I said this before, but, you know, most of us, I'm looking out, some of us rent, some of us have different living situations. If somebody came and paid your mortgage off, you would feel a certain amount of indebtedness to them. And that would be right. I mean, if they held it over your head, maybe shame on them, right? But that's not what God does. He's so humble. He pays for us to have eternal life and says, do you want to come and follow me? And I think, I'm just making an assumption if you're anything like me, there's a struggle there. Right? It's hard to follow him. It's hard to leave this world behind, count the cost and say, no, no I'm going to abandon all this and follow you. It's a daily struggle. And yet think of the debt, the greatness of the debt that he paid off. That's why our focus should always be on what he did and not on what we're doing. When we stay focused on the sacrifice focused on him like hebrews the whole book is like jesus is the best just understand that jesus is better than angels he's better than moses better than the law he's better than he's the best high priest out there right when our focus is there suddenly it's off ourselves we stop despising others and we realize we're just like this tax collector standing before a god that paid our debt that was unpayable by us and these people that arrive at the great white throne they're reaching into their pockets like trying to come up with enough to cover something they cannot cover and the debt that is revealed to them all of their thoughts and motivations all of all of their life is laid out before their eyes and there's no paying it off and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books And none of them are good enough to earn eternal life. Is that clear for everybody? Right? 
You have a ticket to heaven. You have a way maker. You, you have a way, you know, truth and the life. And that's possible not through anything that you can go out there and do or earn. It's possible through Jesus Christ alone. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead. I don't even know what that means. So if you have any ideas, I'd love to know. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Uh, maybe that's a, like a reference to the flood, all the people that died in the flood. Maybe it's because people that die at sea are not buried in a tank. I don't know what it means, really. Um, and death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them. It's kind of being a little redundant, not in a bad way, but just saying the same thing again. Those, those who were brought to life you know, the dead were brought to life to stand before judgment. They were resurrected for judgment. That's what it's saying again. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Man, how freeing it is to just remember that we are not going to stand before God to, to receive salvation. God is going to say, oh, you were good enough and you weren't. It is entirely what he's done that my confidence is put in. So I can live in the confidence of him being enough because I know I could never be good enough. And that's still true to this day. You know, it's kind of like this, man. It's, sorry, you're not all men. Um, it's from, I'm from Philadelphia. It comes out sometimes, you know. Um, if I called you John, then, no, that's a Philly thing. Probably not, none of you would understand it. But, um, I lost it. Stupid. It's what he's paid, guys. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God can obliterate your sin. He can blot out your sin or he can blot you out. Jesus made a way for that to happen. He deserves my worship and he deserves your worship. There's nothing more freeing. I remember what I was going to say. That's good because I thought it was gone. There's nothing more freeing to me than to know. I mean, if we lived under the law, if we lived under like rules, if we lived under, we're going to get up to heaven and God is going to say, you're pretty good. You come in. You're pretty terrible. You stay out. Man, if we lived that way, I would be in agony all my days down here. Right? You know, the law or rules or commands, you know, legalism does this in a Christian's life. Today you will fail God. Everybody here in some way, shape, or form will fail God today. I will too. And legalism says, oh, I saw that. You just failed. You were just snarky to your wife again. You just told your kid you wouldn't get him a glass of water. You just ignored your wife. She was trying to talk to you. You just went off and did whatever you wanted to do. And the law says, you failed. And that's final. You're done. You, you messed up. And you're brought, you're brought face to face with, I'm, I'm a failure again. You know what grace teaches us? Grace doesn't allow us to just say, I'll always be this way. I can't change. No, grace is a hand up when we fail again 
and again and again. And if you're anything like me or anything, I'll throw my wife under the bus, anything like my wife or anything like any legitimate, you're born again believer that I know, you will struggle with what's your flesh, what's your, what you want. You'll fail many times, but you'll look to God's grace and in your failure, you'll recognize that there's the greatest, the greatest love you could ever know or receive is, is from him because he doesn't see you mess up and say, good, stay there. I don't want you anymore. He says, I'll help you out of that addiction. I'll help you out of that bitterness. I'll help you out of whatever it is. You know, we're going to read next two weeks from now because Andrew Gibson's teaching next week. We're going to read that, behold, you know, God makes all things new. What, just heaven and earth? No. He's making us new. He's changing us day by day. And the way for that to happen is not to hang up the Ten Commandments in your house and say, I'm not going to break any of these today. Oh, it's to look to the grace of God, to look to the heart of a father who wants to teach and train us and change us. And grace is the only way your life will ever be changed because we are naturally rule breakers. We are sinners in need of great grace. David talked about, I think, Psalm 103, how great, like how high in the heavens God's mercy was. Why do you think David was talking about how big God's mercy was? Because he needed a lot of mercy. It's pretty simple. We need a lot of mercy. And that's what God has for us each day. Every day his mercies are new. And we come to the end of every day and his faithfulness is on display. Man, he hasn't put us away. He hasn't obliterated us. He obliterated his son in our place so that we could have eternal life. If you don't know him, I don't kind of look in, I mean, this, this is not like, hey, somebody gets saved that's already saved. But if you don't know that kind of grace, then I guarantee you, you don't have peace as you contemplate standing before God on the merits of your works. You'll never have peace. If you do know grace, you can have abundant peace because you're not on the scales. You know, your life isn't being weighed out to gain entrance to heaven. That's where I love to exist. You know, Paul told Timothy as a young pastor, he says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, Tim. You're going to make mistakes. Uh, God's grace, God is bigger than your heart. Your heart condemns you? Oh, I have to read it. And then I'm really, I really am done. I'm probably long. And John 3, for if our heart condemns us, know this, who's bigger than your heart? Whose grace is bigger than your sin? God's is. God is greater than our heart, and He knows all things. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, for He knows all things. Pursue God. Turn to Him. Draw near to Him, and He'll draw near to you. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time in it, Lord, and uh, making sense, plodding through Revelation, Lord. And uh, we pray specifically for Andrew next week as he brings... Uh, us to where I think he's going to be in John. He may end up somewhere else, but Lord, I just pray that you would continue to bless us and that we would be the church, your body, your family, not just on Sundays, but all through the week with our own families, with each other. And Lord, you do a great work in our midst, one that we don't deserve and haven't earned. Uh, we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Hey.
That's why I say grace and peace. That's why I say grace and peace at the end. Grace first, then peace. Okay. Grace and peace. Amen. There we go. Hey, if any